Hi, I'm Elin Miller, and this is Everyday Reconciliation. This podcast is a hands-on look at reconciliation, what it means, why it's important, and what everyday actions non-Indigenous people, like me, can take as part of this national project. As you can hear, I'm a settler. I immigrated to Canada in 2008 and now live in Ottawa on the traditional unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. I've been curious to learn more about life on reserve and dig a little deeper into Indigenous self-governance. I want to better understand the opportunities and challenges, both culturally and practically, the impact of government intervention and what has changed in recent decades. So this week, I'm speaking to Arlen Dumas, the Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. Before being elected to the AMC, Grand Chief Dumas served his own community of Matthias Kalom Cree Nation as chief for over a decade. Tansi, Grand Chief, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you introduce yourself and tell me about your background and where you grew up? Yes, my name is Arlen Dumas. I'm the Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. I come from an isolated and remote community called Puckettawagan, which is about uh, 850 kilometers northwest of Winnipeg. It's uh, almost on the border of Saskatchewan, where the Churchill River meanders into the province of Manitoba. That sounds beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You had a very traditional upbringing, I understand, including learning Cree as your first language. Can you tell me a bit more about growing up on reserve? Yeah, um, yes, I, I, I'm fortunate to be of a, a generation that still retains our language in in, uh, in northern Manitoba. I, I In the time when I grew up, my grandfather was a, a trapper and a fisherman. Uh, I spent... Uh, uh, large portion of my formative years uh, on the trap line with, with my family and then uh, also in the reserve of Puckettawagan. So uh, the reserve name Puckettawagan uh, in Cree pronounced Puckettawaganik and that means a place to fish or there, uh, a, a place with plenty of fish. Um, but the my the uh, first nation that I belong to is called the Matthias Cologne Cree Nation. Uh, so uh, that that was essentially my uh, my formative years, and then I uh, I started going to school uh, on reserve in in Pukatawagan, uh from uh, kindergarten until uh, grade ten when when uh, when I finished. What's the ma- major change in on-reserve life that you have seen in your lifetime? Well, that's a that's a very um, deep question. This is a, a significant question. I guess I'd have to uh, back up a little bit uh, and give you a little bit of of context. You know, when when I was growing up, um, things were just as they were. Uh, I didn't realize um, my circumstance. You know, I I didn't truly appreciate you know, the difference between growing up on reserve and uh, in towns, especially at a young, young age, because you didn't, you didn't travel very much. So I didn't, I didn't really know um, uh, what it was. Again, the, uh, the generation that raised me uh, and the reason why I, uh, I believe 
uh, I am able to speak my language and that I am uh, uh, sort of more connected to many of my cultural uh, practices was because my grandparents' generation uh, uh, was the first generation to go to residential school, but they didn't have to go uh, as long as my, my uh, parents' generation did. Uh, mainly because in our area, the uh, residential school burnt down. So uh, I guess that was a blessing for my grandfather's generation. Uh, so they were able to retain much of their cultural identity. So language was, was very, very, very strong. And a lot of those cultural practices. Uh, so I think uh, as time moves on, the biggest, the big, biggest difference that I see today is that the, uh, the, Many of the forces that have uh, impacted our communities have actually uh, put a strain on our language. Uh, many of the younger generation uh, do not speak their language, and, and it's something that we really need to focus on, and we really need to um, help and, and reinvigorate the, the languages uh, in our communities. Um, again, you know, uh, on the topic of, of systemic racism, uh, growing up in, in my home community, uh, we didn't actually have access to uh, hydroelectric power uh, until uh, the mid-80s, mid-1980s. Wow, that's quite recent. Yeah, right. I, it sounds like I grew up in the 1800s when yeah. really I... You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's not it's not that long ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, but uh, but again, uh, you know, the Hudson Bay Company, I remember, had electricity and the school had electricity and where the teachers lived had electricity and where the priest lived had electricity. And uh, uh, the RCMP, who had a little trailer in our community when I was a child, had electricity, but none of us did. Um, we were able to sort of uh, some people could could piggyback off of the, uh, the uh, diesel generating stations that, that were powering our, our isolated and remote communities. So I guess that's sort of a, a big difference. It wasn't until I actually started, was able to uh, uh, travel as I got older when I realized that, you know, everybody had running water and everybody had electricity and running water actually wasn't a, uh, a mainstream thing for us until uh, the late eighties, early nineties. So. Um, so those were very big differences that I, that I've experienced in my, in my life. So they were improvements. Yep. That's, yep. They were improvements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, we were started, uh, uh, getting access to, uh, uh, modern housing, more modern housing with, with electricity and running water. Mm -hmm. What about health and, uh, child and family services? Has that improved or, or, uh, or not? Well, it, it depends. Um, um, health has improved and, and uniquely we're in a unique position. And, and you know what, I'm going to acknowledge uh, uh, our former chief, his name was Pascal Bigody. Uh, he was, a, you know, he's a, he's a tremendous leader. He was one of my role models. You know, I, I was fortunate to actually serve as a counselor under him for a little while. Unfortunately, uh, he passed away a few years ago, but uh, through his advocacy and his strong leadership, you know, many of these things that I've, that I've spoken about, the improvements that we got were a result of uh, 
his advocacy and him and, and working with uh, with willing allies to, to sort of bring mod- modernity to to our community. You know, um, so our, my home community in Pukatawagan is uh, one of the few uh, communities that has actually a, a health transfer agreement. So that agreement uh, uh, means that there are certain services that were directly negotiated between the federal government and our our First Nation. Uh, so through that agreement, we we take we we um, administer and look after uh, certain aspects of our health care, like public health, uh, home and community care programs, things of that sort. The whole reason why we needed to have our own health uh, transfer agreement was because of the current status quo, the, the, the system as it is today, uh, even in 2021, is still rife with, with systemic racism. It's still rife with uh, discrimination, institutional discrimination. And uh, the logic with, of our leadership of the time was that, well, if other people don't want to provide the service to us, we may as well provide it to ourselves. And we had to reinvigorate and strengthen that relationship that we had uh, with the federal government. And that's why in my home community, many of the things uh, uh, we've had to do by necessity directly negotiate uh, with the federal government. So you were chief of, of the Matthias Kalankri Nation for over a decade. Yes. And during that time, you got the community out of co-management with the province. Yeah. So I, I assume this, this was part of that process. Can you explain a little bit about what co-management is and, and the significance of, of ending it? Yes, I will. But before I do that, I just want to finish off the previous question. You asked about child and family services, and I think it's oh, important yes. for people to to know about child and family services, because that's a very important issue that I've been very vocal in, and uh, um, uh, attempting to, to, to right the wrongs that have been done. And again, uh, um, this term systemic racism, you know, pe- people really have to try and understand it and try to learn what it means and, and how it actually impacts people, uh, you know, these punitive policies. So when I was a child, and I, I've used this story before, I saw a childhood friend of mine. His name, his name was Chopper. That was his nickname. I don't remember his real name because when we were little kids, we did, we you know we called each other uh, our nicknames. Um, and the way that our communities function, or the way that our communities work, is that everybody sort of watches out in, in close knit communities. But children are given independence as well. Uh, so it, it's normal to see a child playing in their yard independently because all the kookums in the neighborhood are watching over them and, and there's, there's, a, there's a large support network there. But I actually had seen, uh, as a child, I was maybe four years old, uh, a, a plain land and it was called the Children's Aid Society uh, in Manitoba at the time. And these individuals came up onto the shore and they saw my little friend Chopper playing in his front yard, and they literally stole him, put him on his plane, and flew away. Right there and then. Right there and then. So to this day, I don't know where Chopper is. I don't know how he is. I, he would have, you know, we would have grown up together. Uh, I assume he would have had many of the similar experiences I've had, and uh, uh, I, I don't know what had happened. But it was because of those types of actions and, the, and those punitive 
uh, steps, uh, you know, those, those um, entitled uh, positions that, that the provincial government thought they had had, it actually started to cause conflict. So at the time, the province said, okay, what are we going to do? The federal government said, okay, what do you want us to do? And again, the First Nations decided that we want to have more administration of administrative control and we, we want to move forward in a meaningful way. So there was all this wonderful rhetoric and talk and, and mm. the, uh, the spirit and intent of was we were going to build a system or a process that was going to be representative of our communities, of our culture, that was going to provide safety to our children and, and all of these things. And uh, fortunately, as a, as a younger child, I was, I was fortunate to actually see the genesis of this and, and the, the, the development of this new system. And, and it worked for a little while. Uh, I'll give you an example. So one of the things that the um, local child care committees decided was that uh, children's child tax children's special allowance, what, you know, it's called, what, what it's called. You know, when I was a kid, my, I was lucky. My mom would give me my little, I think it was 40 bucks when I was a little kid, she'd give it to me and I'd go to the store with it. And, uh, but children in care, the local child care committees said, well, if we're looking out for these children and we're helping them and we're, we have these resources to try and be, do proactive things and help our children, the children's money, their child tax should belong to them so what we're going to do is we're going to set up these little funds these little trust funds and we're going to set that money aside so that when the child is either returned to the family or if the child is a permanent ward and somebody who will be in 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 care until they reach adulthood then we will keep that money uh to to the side and and when they age out of care, we will give them their, uh, their child tax. So, so unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, some, some people struggle a bit more. And some of my friends, when they aged out of care, they were given their money, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't millions of dollars, but it was, you know, significant enough to help somebody uh, start up or go to college or go to school or whatever it was that, that those individuals wanted to do. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, long story short, uh, people, People take liberties. The, the government of the day um, decided that uh, under the charter, under the constitution, health, child and welfare is to be the under the auspices and authority of the provincial government, and the provincial government will decide these things, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of what First Nations had to say or, or what First Nations wanted to do. Um, so then the relationship started to deteriorate over time. Then the provincial government continues to be incentivized and supported and uh, changes policies uh, and actually commodifies children in care and actually starts to do a, uh, based on a, on a couple of other factors, but really it's a cash grab because children have become uh, a commodity and have incentivized the apprehension of children from our our reserves and our communities and bring them to the cities. And then those children, then in turn, the system ends up paying a whole bunch of other people to raise those children and provide them with whatever it is they're providing them. But it takes them out of their community, out of their culture. Uh, it does not. So there's an incentive. There's an incentive, there's an to, incentive take, to take them out of their community. Yes. For, so, so for financial gains. Absolutely. And it's almost as, as it's a residential school 2.0. 
Mm-hmm. Just for our listeners, 11,000 kids in care in Manitoba, 90% are Indigenous. Yes. And there's no reason for it. If we, if we would use uh, the resources to pull those children out of their communities and actually uh, redirect it so that the com- children could remain in their communities with their culture, with their families, uh, it would do everybody a... a, a it would be more beneficial for everybody. Uh, however, as I said, you know, it's, um, I think it was uh, Minister Philpott or uh, former Minister Philpott at the time had called it a humanitarian crisis in Manitoba because of how many children had been in care. Unfortunately, the system again, uh, the, the child welfare system in, in, in Manitoba uh, didn't agree with some of the things that the child the local child care committee was doing. So in 2008, when I had become chief, and I'll get to your co-management question earlier, and it's important to, to, to have all of this in context, um, I'd, I'd, become, I'd become a new chief. So, uh, and I'll jump around a little bit, Ellen, Ellen if, if you don't mind. So I was fortunate to grow up when I did because a lot of these initiatives uh, from, from the day local control of education, which meant the First Nations started administering and looking out for their education program, uh, had started. Uh, I, I made reference earlier to our health transfer agreement. You know, there were all of these initiatives that were starting where my home community and, and other First Nations started taking more control, administrative effect of, of their funding, uh, employment and training for welfare or social assistance. Uh, these things were all sort of happening. Uh, and, I, and I sort of take a look at it, and I, I'll call it the golden years because it was quite a transformation, right? I went from mm-hmm. living on the trap line to, to having all of these initiatives happen where we're, we're administering and taking over our, our programming, we're hiring our people, we're, we're doing all these things, we're training people up, and, and it was quite, a, quite an amazing time. So all of this stuff is happening and because all, I have benefited from all of that advocacy and all of that support that I had had at the time. I was fortunate to go to some of the uh, best schools in the country. I got a scholarship and bursary to go uh, to um, a school in, uh, uh, in Ontario. I went to university in, at Mount Allison University in, uh, in Sackville, New Brunswick. Uh, you know, I, so I, I had a lot of opportunity. Uh, and it was actually quite a very positive, positive time. But then when I went home, I, I first went home in 2003 with my family. I returned back to Manitoba. And uh, it was, a, and I hadn't been home because I, you know, I, at the time I was finishing university, I was doing contracting. I was working for, you know, uh, federal and provincial governments. I was working with some of our, our universities. I was I was doing different things, and uh, and I quite enjoyed it. So I had actually hadn't had a chance to be physically in my home community for a couple of years. So then, when I decide to go home, um, I, I arrive home, and it's wonderful to see everybody. But it really it felt different, and there seemed to be a gloom in the community. There seemed to be this negativity in the community, and everybody was was railing against. Uh, uh, chief and council, and everybody was blaming this co-management guy. 
So then I had to, well, what is this co-management thing? Like, what is this? Who is this? And, oh, well, it's because chief and council aren't doing things that they needed this government person to come in. And yet, so then you peel back the layers and you find out. So, and, and it's important to, and again, I, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but systemic racism, institutional bias, racism for that matter, all of these things play a role and we, we need to figure out how we, we correct all of these things. I'm a product of that earlier time that I called the golden years when our communities were running things and we were doing things and my peer group and my cohort, you know, amongst my, that, that group of people who were fortunate to go through that system at the time that they did. Uh, and because there wasn't a lot of people going through the system at the time, there were, the resourcing was available in that moment to help us for tutoring, for, for, for books, to, to help pay our, our, our rent for tuition, like all these different things. We had the proper investment at the time. Mm-hmm. So when I come home and I start peeling back the layer and I find out, so the, the rationale or the, the, the narrative of the time was First Nations aren't able to run their own affairs. So we've had to implement these third party or co-managers and there was such a, uh, a big push to discredit First Nations leadership and First Nations administration. And everybody just bought it. Everybody. Everybody just thought it was except, yep, absolutely. Hire co-managers, hire third-party managers, hire all these people because, uh, and, and sorry to be so uh, unpolitically correct, these Indians can't look after themselves. Mm-hmm. But just literally a, a decade earlier, nothing could be further from the truth when we were looking after all of our own affairs. And it's not until uh, I sort of had, had a chance to sort of take a look and, and truly analyze what was really happening was many of these agreements that had been agreed upon in the 80s were intentionally inaccurate. They were not properly funded. And we were just fortunate to go through when we did because the demand on those services wasn't as great at the time. So when I come home, the third party manager and the co-manager would force the communities to hire on an accounting firm to help them look after their accounting and their finances and whatnot. Because the reality is the Department of Indian Affairs has chronically underfunded First Nations communities since 1982. In 1982, the government of the day said there will be no more new Indian money. We're going to give First Nations money a bit of a, uh, a 2% increase on inflation. They didn't give us the national rate of inflation. In 1980, I remember being a child. And we celebrated because the Matthias Cologne Cree Nation had over a thousand band members. We cheered and we were proud. Wow, we're a big community. There's a thousand people. Hmm. In 1982, they put a cap on our funding. In the early 80s, we start taking local control. We start doing these administrative things. We start doing all this stuff. Okay. So then when I come, when I first come home, we're all in this co-management. We're all in this intervention program. 
and the blame is squarely being put on First Nations leadership. They're being discredited, they're being besmirched, they're being disrespected. And, and unfortunately, as I said, because of systemic racism, because of bias, because of all of these things, everybody just believed it. As, as hard as that is for people to hear or as hard as that is for people to accept, that is what had happened. People just arbitrarily, yes, those Indians, they obviously can't look after themselves. But what people don't know is that all of those arrangements that were entered into were actually set up to fail. Our population went from 1,000 people in 1980 to 2021, I believe there's 4,500 people on my band list now. Same, same amount of money, essentially, other than, uh, and again, I want to acknowledge the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs and our, and our Chiefs Education uh, uh, Committee and, and the Assembly for uh, standing by uh, principal decisions and, all, uh, and, and uh, uh, with the allies we have within the government at the time, we were able to increase our education funding and almost make it comparable to, uh, to the provincial government. We've got a bit, bit of a ways to go, but other than that, there has been no increases. So for operations and maintenance of our, of our community roads and bridges, the same amount of 1981, our, our train dollars is the same. Our, all these things have, have remained the same, but our population has almost quadrupled. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you a, a real quick example, and then I'll get back to the co-management thing. So when I come home, um, I was really excited because our, our education um, post-secondary person at the time uh, called me and said, hey, you're, you're home. Would you like to participate in our, in our education authorities uh, selection for post-secondary students? And I was like, I was excited. I was like, absolutely. I'd love to do that. I'd love to to be able to help that way. And I'm, I'm at, yeah, I'll be there. So she, there was a, a committee, I think there was about five or six of us. Uh, so we went to go meet with her and, and uh, uh, her name was Claire. And she goes, okay, here, the, there's 10 students who are, who are currently in university. They're in good academic standing. They're doing really well. So they get first priority. So we see the 10 names and we're like, oh, good for those people. And then she goes, okay, here's 10 brand new graduates. They've gotten early acceptance to their schools. They're all in good academic standing. And our policy is that brand new graduates get first priority. So we're like, that sounds great. So we move another 10 people to, so that they, they, they can uh, go to post-secondary. And then she brings out a box and goes, okay, here's 500 applications of people that want to go to post-secondary. I was like, okay. She goes, you can only pick two. So then what ends up happening is that those 500 applications that are actually not going to get uh, accepted to go to university, when they call and they're told, sorry, you can't, your, your application wasn't selected, then they're going to call the Department of Indian Affairs and the Department of Indian Affairs is going to tell that individual well, sorry, we can't help you. That responsibility solely of your First Nations community, and they need to tell you why they're, they're, they're not sending you uh, to university, when really what the person at Indian Affairs should be telling people is, sorry, we've chronically underfunded your education system for the last 50 years, and unfortunately, 
you, we're discriminating against you so you can't go to university. Mm-hmm. But instead of taking that fault themselves, they hand it off to, to the First Nations and they blame the First Nations. So, um, and it's important to, to have that example uh, because it is those types of stories. It was that type of narrative that actually justified and, and made the rationale for the government to impose third party and third party managers and co-managers. So when people start feeling the pinch, when people start feeling that there isn't enough money to go around, when our populations are booming, when, our, when, when, when there's more need for the services, when there's more people who require resources, uh, the government doesn't accept the responsibility and say, okay, well, we need to increase your funding. They blame the leadership and discredit them and then slowly start imposing this third-party manager or this co-manager. If you're in third-party management, which means the federal government is completely in charge of, of all of your finances and all, all your resources, they'll give you a list of people. You have to pick from this list. Hmm. And then when you pick from that list, the department will, well, you decided to pick these people, right? It's very prescribed. It's, it is not, it was never a, a transparent or open process. And it was never uh, uh, based on the reality of the chronic underfunding that's actually impacting all of our communities because of decisions that were made, you know, decades mm-hmm. and decades ago, right? And then you have to hand over the control of your finances of everything. to someone on that list. Right, Yes. If you're in co-management, I would argue it's the same thing as third party. It's just, it's semantics because it's essentially the same thing. The co-manager has to sign off on the checks. Mm -hmm. And if you want to make things move, then you have to sign off on the check as well. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a very prescribed process and it never addresses the issue of chronic underfunding. So the co-management and the third party management um it's just different interventions that are put in, yeah. triggered by this debt ra- ratio. By the debt ratio, and it's by the federal government, mm-hmm. and it's and it and it does nothing to address the uh, the chronic underfunding that has impacted our communities. But unfortunately, I had to become chief to actually uh, understand and and get the information uh, in in the proper way and, and try and convey that to to my communities. No, how, how common is that, that uh, the First Nations communities are put in intervention? At one point, it was very common. I believe, I believe at one point, almost every community in Manitoba was in some form of intervention hmm. and arguably uh, still are. The only thing I ever practiced, promised my community was that I would get us out of intervention. I would get us out of go- uh, government uh, inter- interference of, of what we needed to do in our community and to be accountable and transparent to my community and and to do all of those things and I was able to do it and I thought it would take me two years but fortunately I was able to do it in in uh, six months wow um, and w- once I was able to do that then that actually helped me start working towards redeveloping my community getting housing getting infrastructure projects getting a sewer and water treatment plant you know there, there's a um, a multitude of things that were impacted. But what I started to realize as well is that the moment that I was able to actually free myself from that arrangement, all of a sudden uh, there's certain funds that, that, that were available 
but you can't accept, you can't, you won't receive those resources or those funds unless you admit that you're incapable of doing things yourself. So you have to say that, yeah, I'm, I'm unable to administer my own affairs and then you'll be given the resources so that you, you can pay somebody else to look after your own affairs. And it perpetuates, it perpetuates the system. I was elected in council almost immediately when I got home and I thank my community and I acknowledge them. And I became very, very active and I participated and I wanted to know. So I worked with the co-managers and the third-party managers, all of which were making probably three, $350,000 a year um, paid for by the First Nation at the time. You know, that's the equivalent of a house. I could have built a house. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so I, 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 I did all the exercise. I ran through the budgets and we would try our best to, to balance things. And we would, because I wasn't aware of the chronic underfunding, I didn't realize that, uh, our federal partners had actually set us at a disadvantage from the beginning of the creation of many of our, uh, our, uh, initiatives. Um, so at the time my debt ratio was 48%, which means, uh, for every dollar that would come into my community, 48 cents was already spoken for or indebted somehow. So it made it very difficult to provide the services to the community. And that was the rationale to be in, in some form of intervention. So when I got in as chief, um, I uh, advocated strenuously that as a new leader, I be given resources so that I could have an objective, critical analysis of our finances, of our books. And the department at the time said, well, you already have a co-manager. You, al- you already have an accounting firm. And because I'd already been involved for the better part of a decade, I said, no, those people have a specific function and they're focused on their function. And uh, I don't feel that they are able to give me an objective and independent analysis on my finances. And keep in mind, I go to the quarterly mealings. I do the budgeting practices. I do all of the things because I wanted to help my community and I wanted to uh, correct uh, our financial predicament. They said, fine, Chief Dumas, here you go. Here's, here's a, some money and uh, do what you need to do. So what I had gone and uh, I, I went and found a firm that could uh, um, give me that, that analysis. So mm-hmm. uh, we shared our books with them. They took a look at everything. And this is why I was able to do it in three months. It was actually three months. I said six months earlier. It was actually three months. The independent uh, finance person took a look at my my all of my uh, finances and said, "Oh, chief, your uh, your debt is not posted properly." And I said, "I don't know what that means. I, it is posted. It's right there. I see it. It's we owe X number X amount of money." He goes, "No, no, no. It's not posted right." I said, "Well, what does that mean? I don't understand what that means. I'm not a." I'm not an accountant. He goes, well, there's different kinds of debt. There's long-term debt, there's short-term debt. So then he actually does a spreadsheet and he goes, look, this is your long-term debt. This is your 
your your your uh, your mortgages. This is whatever whatever our debts were, and he actually lines them all up uh, so I could see them, and then he sh- spreads them out the way they're that they're supposed to be spread out. Mm-hmm. And my debt ratio went from forty eight percent to seven percent. Hmm. All the while, we'd already had accounting firms who were actually supposed to be working with us, financial experts who were supposed to be working for us. But really, they were not. They were, they were more incentivized to keep themselves being paid because they were getting $350,000 uh, from, from the communities to maintain this false narrative of, of not being able to look after ourselves. So the moment I found that out, I was on the phone and I was irate because because of that false narrative, so this this whole concept of co-management and intervention is it all it is is smoke and mirrors, and it actually really isn't the, the truth. And that's why I I've always uh, fought against it. Uh, I've mm-hmm. I've always been about being accountable and transparent to our nations. When I was chief, we'd have annual general assemblies, we'd present our audits, we would present you know, all of our information because our communities demanded, our communities want to know. Once I was able to remove all, all of these impediments of co-management, my community was actually able to uh, redevelop and rebuild like uh, like it once did. So you got St. Matthias Column Cree Nation out of co-management. Yes. And and after you were elected um, the Grand Chief in the Assembly of First um, Nations in Manitoba, um you put forward a plan to get all the First Nations in Manitoba out of intervention. Yes. Can you talk more about this and the challenges in, in, in implementing that? So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, brag a little bit. I wanna <laughs> I wanna thank our chiefs and in, uh, again the Assembly of Manitoba chiefs and the for the support that they have given and the the solidarity that we had shown. I also want to acknowledge, you know, Minister Minister Bennett and uh, former Minister Phil Pot. Because as I was making those statements, uh, uh, my first, as Grand Chief, when I was elected as Grand Chief, the first, uh, my first media hit, uh, they had asked me what were the things I was going to focus on. And I said, this intervention project, I want to get rid of co-managers and third-party managers. Uh, It just so happened that at the same time, Minister Bennett and former Minister Phil Potter said the same thing as well. They're like, we need to, we need to address this issue because people are becoming more aware of what the reality of of this this uh, false narrative was, mm-hmm. and uh, with their collaboration with the government's assistance, we were actually able to remove all third party managers almost within a year. Uh, That's the most severe form of, yes, of intervention. Yes, third party. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was in this was in twenty seventeen, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then I believe we've been able to de-escalate everybody. There are some communities who who um, require help, and who which we try to help. We we try our best to uh, to assist through the assembly. We had actually had achieved the pilot project to work with uh, a number of communities to help with uh, with reporting, with um, um, uh, many of the exercises that they need to to become more. Uh, independent uh, mm-hmm. without without the reliance of uh, many of these other firms and and we were successful in do, in, in doing that mm-hmm. so once you can move 
beyond the co-management and third-party management, what future do you see for Indigenous communities in, in Manitoba and in Canada? I see the, the possibility of what we achieved in the past, but we have to have willing partners. You know, I spoke of the golden era. Mm-hmm. I spoke of a time, right? I, I You know, when, when we started the conversation, you asked me how I grew up. I grew up on a trap line, right? And then yeah. because we had meaningful advocacy and, and, and a willingness to try and do things in innovative ways, and we started doing local control and all of those things, I saw the 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 blooming of my community i i saw the 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 growth that had happened but there was some meaningful investment and it's through that time where where we were training our own people we were putting people in place our own directors our own educators our all these people all this was happening are you optimistic about the future yes i am i yes i am uh but, but i think but i think we all need to do our part we need to make sure people are making informed decisions that people have the proper information at the end of the day we all have an obligation and we have to move we need to do away with ignorance and we need to do away with prejudice uh and and it needs to change and and uh and i'm trying to be optimistic because i think i see it i think this generation that's coming up is going to demand that things are done differently, that people become more aware and that we all move in a, in, in a better direction for, for all of us. One of my fellow uh, Grand Chiefs, uh, um, Jerry Daniels, he uh, they did a presentation about a year ago where First Nations in Manitoba bring, bring $9 billion to this region. Hmm. That's a significant amount of money and a significant amount of resources. And if we had allies and people wanting to work with us in a meaningful and true way, what is the economic impact of that $9 billion and how much further would we be able to to make things move? It's just that you need First Nations expertise and First Nations acumen to to get these done. And uh, mm-hmm. and as long as people are, are willing to do that, it will it will serve everybody well because when First Nations do well, we all do well. And that's 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 an example that we see all the time here in Manitoba. Mm-hmm. So I'm at my last question now, and I think maybe reflecting on the, the systemic racism that you have described, how can settlers like me, individual Canadians, contribute to the reconciliation process sort of in, in this context? I think people need to 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 make a bit of bit a bit more of an effort to become informed. I think people have to be courageous and ask questions. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with asking a question. And I on, on a personal level, I always tell people, ask me a question. Don't make statements, right? But come and ask ask a question, and and then we can we can have a good conversation, and we can try and inform each other. Um, I would I would encourage everybody to question everything you you thought you knew, uh, question everything you thought you understood, and uh, and listen. Um, mm. uh, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately, and and I and I uh, you know I want to acknowledge the two hundred and fifteen children that we found, uh, um, and it's tragic that it's the discovery of those unmarked mass graves that have facilitated this change that we're all sort of experiencing in in canada um Mm -hmm. uh, because prior to that we had 
the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry. We had the Royal Commission. We had all of these things that had actually exposed and identified many of the issues that we're talking about, many of the issues that you and I are talking about here today. But for there was there was a there was a resistance to accepting that information, and that mm-hmm. uh, uh, you can't you can't argue right. There's there's over six thousand five hundred unmarked graves that have been discovered. You know, and and we we need to we need to take a look at that and and uh, what facilitated that and and how we need to change. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to seize the moment. I think that you know I and and. Uh, uh again from my personal experience there was a few things that had happened here in manitoba this summer that were were quite significant there the treaty one communities here had a uh, uh a march on canada day it was called no pride and genocide and uh, uh they invited everybody to participate in it and we uh went by horseback and we rode up the uh from the uh uh canadian human rights museum up to uh the, the Portage Avenue, and we went to uh, to where um, Pegwas First Nation has their urban reserve, and there was thousands of people there, thousands of people, all dressed in orange, uh, standing with us in in solidarity, standing us in memoriam of of those children that were were found, mm. and uh, and you know, and there's these little glimmers of hope, you know. Uh, as we were standing, mm-hmm. I happened to be at the front, and there was a, uh, a an elder, uh, I'm assuming she was Polish or Ukrainian or whatever, and we were getting ready to go, and this elder comes running. She's like, Chiefs, Chiefs, where do I go? Where do I stand? You know, how do I help? And I thought that that really, that was very some, something very positive for me, and it's all those types of acts. Those things all have an effect. Yeah, it was wonderful to see all the all the Canadians dressed in orange. And yeah, absolutely. On September 30. Yeah, absolutely. And uh that too. That was a that was a tremendous, tremendous effect. You know, uh, there was there was all these all these examples, and and we need to keep keep the things moving. And and uh, and fundamentally, um, the more that we're that we're able to look after ourselves, the less reliant we are on anybody else. And when First Nations do well, we all do well. And people need to sort of question question why things are the way they are mm-hmm. you know uh there's a reason why there there are systemic issues there are systemic racism there are uh bias policies and, and these things all need to change for the better you know when we we've given tons of examples where we're wanting to be willing and meaningful partners but but we need that advocacy in ottawa we need that advocacy within cities we need that advocacy from our our fellow canadians and uh you know the 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 better we do, the better everybody does. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for this discussion, Grand Chief. I learned a lot. I learned about this chronic underfunding and um, and the co-management and how it was all caused by systemic racism that still persists today. Um, thanks for joining me. Yep. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, of, of course, I encourage the listeners to, you know, don't take my word for it. Go, go learn yourself and, and you'll see these things. And, uh, and we all need to do our part to to try and help one another. And uh, we really need to affect change so we can truly make a better tomorrow. Yes, better tomorrow for all of us. Yes. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. I'm still digesting everything we've learned from Grand Chief Dumas. 
I'm so grateful he was able to join us and share all of those stories and insights. I certainly have a clearer picture of the long-term damage third-party management and co-management has done to the First Nations across this country. I hope the advocacy and activism of people like Grand Chief Dumas continues to succeed in getting communities out of intervention. It's so clear that self-governing is in the best interest of all First Nations. And as the Grand Chief reminds us, when First Nations do well, we all do well. We have to remember, though, that it's not just up to the advocacy of chiefs and other indigenous activists to make change. All residents of this country need to be involved in advocacy for undoing the harmful legacy of colonialism. Grand Chief Dumas has also reinforced something we're hearing time and time again. Settlers have to become informed. Don't be afraid to ask questions. In fact, question everything you thought you knew and understood. Grand Chief has really helped me do that today, and I hope has for you too. That's all for this episode. Thank you as always for joining me. Until next time. Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Rio Tinto and Canada 2020. The show is edited by Erin Reynolds and produced by me, Elin Miller, along with Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jarrah. The artwork was designed by Sylvie Leveillier, and the music was produced by Marius Miller. <laughs>